Okay, so last time we were talking about time-resolved spectroscopy, or mostly we were talking about methods of generating ultra-fast pulses, or I should say methods of generating pulsed light. We talked about various different pulse lengths and the technologies necessary to get to the different pulse lengths. So we had Q-switching, which is the method to get to nanosecond pulses and to increase the peak power. That was a technique we said was useful for um, for generating high power for nonlinear optics. And Q-switching involves storing light, storing energy in the upper state of your lasing material. So generally you want a lasing material with a long upper state lifetime. A long lifetime generally means a narrow frequency bandwidth. So generally lasers that are very narrow in frequency lend themselves well to Q-switching. Um, and then we talked about mode locking, which was a method to get even shorter pulses that took advantage of the fact that lasers with a wide bandwidth that could oscillate over a large frequency band could have multiple longitudinal modes simultaneously oscillating, and if the phase condition between them was, was correct, those modes could interfere to produce pulses in the time domain. So sort of two different regions of the spectrum very uh, narrow line with lasers for Q-switching, very broad bandwidth lasers for, um, for multi, uh, mode locking. So let's talk a little bit about how you deal with ultra-fast pulses that you would get from a mode-locked laser. So if you have a very narrow pulse in the time domain, that's going to consist of a large frequency spectrum. And in the example of mode locking, we started by saying that there were some um, large gain bandwidth, which means a large region of the frequency spectrum over which you could have gain. And you have laser modes covering that entire frequency range. Those interfere to produce a narrow time pulse. And so it makes sense when we talk about the Fourier optics saying that time pulse has a long, broad frequency bandwidth. Well, we started with a broad frequency bandwidth, so there's no magic going on there. Um, but the issue there, there's a couple issues. One is that if your pulse goes through transmissive optics, or even if it goes through air, um, any material that has an index of refraction that index of refraction is likely not constant as a function of frequency. That means there's dispersion. Dispersion will cause different frequencies to travel at different speeds. And so your narrow pulse, which is made up of a broad frequency bandwidth, will see some of those frequency components phase shifted relative to the others. And after propagating through a dispersive material, you get something that looks like this, which we call the chirped pulse. It's broadened in time. Okay, you can think of the different frequency components traveling at different speeds, and so you have a leading edge made of one frequency and a trailing edge that has a different instantaneous frequency. It's one way of thinking about it. Or you can think about the frequency components just getting a uh, frequency-dependent phase shift. Um, so that's one problem that you have when you go through materials. When you go through lenses, you go through windows, um, another problem that you have is that 
you have a very narrow temporal pulse, and you have some finite amount of energy in the pulse, then for uh, reasonable energies, you can very easily get very unreasonable peak powers. Unreasonable meaning peak powers that are sufficient to damage optics. So transmitting a high peak powered pulse like this through an optic can lead to damage in the optic. So even if the average power of the mode lock laser is only you know, in the hundreds of milliwatts region, the peak power can be gigawatts, hundreds of gigawatts, or even beyond. So those are a couple issues that need to be dealt with when you have ultra-fast lasers. There's some special techniques you can do. Um, some elements like uh, beam splitters that are normally made by taking different pieces of glass and gluing them together. So a cube beam splitter is essentially two prisms that are cemented together in optical cement. That cement is the uh, the limiting factor when you talk about damage, it's typically what limits how much power you can put into a cube beam splitter. So if you're dealing with a cube beam splitter, the first thing you can do is buy one that doesn't have cement in between the prisms. Usually you can get one with a small air gap. Um, better yet is you avoid transmissive optics altogether. So one way to do that is instead of using prisms, for instance, use diffraction gratings if you need to disperse the light. Um, if you need to focus the light rather than use lenses, you can use curved mirrors. Just use them in reflection and then you don't have the light going through any absorbing material. And if you need to rotate the polarization, there's ways to do that geometrically by physically rotating the beam rather than using wave plates. Um, and then there's some special techniques you can use for, um, for the lenses that you might have in the system. Um, so if you are in the regime where you maybe you don't need or don't have uh, curved mirrors to focus the light, but you're still using lenses, there's a few things you can do to uh, avoid some problems. Normally, the optimal focusing or um, use of a lens to image a point in the object plane to a point in the image plane occurs when you have what's called a best form lens. There's a particular shape to the lens that minimizes the aberrations. And it's a shape that has a, um, an approximately spherical surface on both sides and the radii of curvature are not equal. So you can buy these, they're called best form lenses and they're a little bit expensive because two sides of the glass need to be ground and polished. So a cheaper alternative that's a close approximation is a plano convex lens. And you see these a lot in laboratories. And because this best form lens has one side which is relatively flat, one side that has most of the curvature, a plano convex lens is one side plane and all of the curvature on the other side. That reduces the manufacturing cost because you don't have to manufacture a curved surface here. So these things are about half the price of those. So you see these a lot, and typically you want to use it in this particular orientation where the focused light um, first sees the flat side 
and then the side that's either collimated or has the object or the image further away would see the, the uh, curved side of the light. So you get fewer aberrations using it in this geometry than you would in this geometry. So normally, you're always taught to use that particular geometry, um, but in ultra-fast optics, or when you start to deal with high peak powers, that actually can be a problem. So what's the problem with this geometry? Yeah, so reflection from the front surface is going to do that. That's no problem. But from the back surface, the Fresnel reflection from that surface is going to be focused. And if you're dealing with high peak powers and then you focus them to small areas, you get very high intensities. And you can get arcing of the air, or if this is inside of a material, you can get damage at that point. Okay, so in this geometry, all the reflections get diffused, or get spread out. Um, it's also common in laboratories to have lots of convex lenses, lots of converging lenses, and not lots of diverging lenses. And so we know that you can have negative focal length lenses, you can have positive focal length lenses. And one of the reasons there's not a lot of diverging lenses is that most of the things you want to do with a diverging lens, you can do with a converging lens. Right? So if you want to, say, diverge, cause a beam to spread out, maybe make a telescope to expand the beam. One way you can do it is a diverging and a converging lens. It does that, but another way you can do it is with um, two converging lenses. Spaced a little further apart in a geometry like this, and because you can the light to diverge using a converging lens just going past the focus. Um, these converging lenses are a little bit more flexible in their use. So you tend to see a little bit more of them in, uh, in most optics laboratories. But they introduce a problem again when you're dealing with high peak power is that because they focus the light to a spot here, in an, in an application where you're just trying to get the light to spread out, passing it through a focus first is, is a no-no when you're using high power. Um, you'll, arc, you'll likely arc the air or damage whatever material is here. So in that case, a diverging lens is a necessity. So a couple practical issues. Um, another one is that if you have ultra-short pulses, it's a good idea, or oftentimes it's a necessity, to stretch them out in time so that they're not so short to reduce the peak power as the pulse propagates through your optical system. And then once you get to the point where you need a short pulse, right before the interaction with whatever your uh, experiment is, you can then compress it. So there are devices called pulse stretchers and pulse compressors that are made of gratings that we'll talk about. Um, they can be used for that. Okay, so just couple of examples. Here's a um, air-spaced polarizing beam splitter. If you go to any 
um, optics supplier and you look at their, their list of materials or their list of uh, products, you'll see things like cube beam splitters and high energy cube beam splitters. So the high energy just means they've removed the, the optical cement and the things that are easily damaged. And you can see in their specs that they list a damage threshold in terms of the number of joules per centimeter. And they spec it for a particular um, type of pulse. Five joules per centimeter squared and a 20 nanosecond pulse at 20 hertz. So what type of mechanism is likely producing a 20 nanosecond pulse at 20 hertz? So mode locking, Q-switching, pulse pump. Security? Okay, why Q-switching? Yeah, so nanoseconds is a typical <coughs> pulse length for Q-switching. You can't really get there with pulse pump techniques. Um, you'd likely get shorter than that with mode locking. And then the other giveaway is that it's at 20 hertz. And with a mode locked laser, the repetition rate is going to be the round trip time of the cavity, which is going to be much less than that of 50 milliseconds. It's going to be much, much shorter than that. Um, so you can see it's CW there's a megawatt per centimeter squared. So in one case they're comparing a power, in the other case they're talking about the entire energy of the pulse. So different, different units and different ways of describing that. Here's a picture that just shows a periscope that takes light, and here's a little smiley face to, to represent the uh, orientation of the, the beam coming in and hitting a periscope. And if the periscope takes light off axis, then it can actually rotate the geometry of the light. So my hand is the smiley face, it's the transverse profile of the beam. It reflects off of this mirror and goes up, reflects off of this mirror and comes out, and it's now rotated 90 degrees from, did I do that right? Going in, say so my fingers are pointing up. Now they're pointing sideways. And so if you can rotate the spatial profile of the beam, you also rotate its polarization. So that's a method to avoid using transmissive wave plates to rotate polarization. Just another one of those experimental techniques I mentioned. Okay, so stretchers and compressors are an integral part of experiments that need ultra-fast optics. Very short uh, pulse length. And I mentioned that a pulse it's, uh, has a broad frequency bandwidth, will get spread out when it goes through a dispersive material. And so the purpose of a stretcher is it's a dispersive element that causes a pulse to get spread out. And it gets spread out in a particular way that allows it to be recompressed later. Okay, so here is a pulse stretcher. So we have a short pulse coming out. It hits a grating. So grating disperses the different frequency components so the different frequency components diffract at different angles. And you can see the blue frequency components here are going to travel a shorter path than the red frequency components, going from the oscillator to the regen over here. And so as a result, the, I guess the blue components you'd expect to arrive first, the red components you'd expect to arrive last in this example. And that's the opposite of what's shown in that picture. But. Um, so that's a chirped pulse. 
that gets produced here. And then one thing you might want to do, if you need very high peak powers, let's say you're trying to attempt to fuse deuterium with high peak powers in a very short pulse, you'd want to op amplify the pulse as much as possible to get as high a power as possible. Now, once you amplify the pulse to the point where it's going to damage the material it's propagating through, that's a fundamental limit. Or at least it's a, it's a practical limit uh, that's not easily gotten around. One way you can get around it is you can take your short pulse, spread it out, that reduces the peak power. Right? You can amplify that. You can amplify that up to the damage limit or some uh, necessary total energy level. And then you can go through a compressor, which is the opposite of the stretcher. It's going to take a chirped pulse and compress it by the same mechanism. So here's a compressor. Um, the idea is the same. The dispersion causes the different frequency components to travel different geometric paths. And I realize here that these are just, uh, just sketches. They're not actually, they're drawing the same geometry for a stretcher and a compressor. And that's not the case. So, two geometries. If you have light diffracting off of a grating, the angle of diffraction will be a function of wavelength. So let me draw two different geometries here. And for simplicity, let me assume that this light gets retroreflected. So in the first case, we have the blue light traveling a shorter distance than the red light. And in the second case, the blue light is traveling a longer distance than the red light, based on the geometry. Okay, so if you stretch out your pulse and produce uh, a certain sign of the dispersion with one of these elements, the other one will produce the opposite sign of dispersion. So one of these stretches, one of them compresses the pulse. Okay, a few other experimental issues when dealing with short pulses. Measuring short pulses can be problematic. Um, most detectors, or really no detectors, have a temporal response that can detect femtosecond pulses. Um, so you have to use some less direct methods of detection if you want to measure the pulse length. One thing you can use is a street camera. This is essentially an oscilloscope. An incident pulse hits a phosphorescent 
actually not, not phosphorescent, that's a, a, a photoelectric screen, so metal. The incident photons produce electrons that leave the screen and are accelerated towards this phosphorescent screen. So the electrons that get produced by this optical pulse will hit this phosphorescent screen and make a dot. If you have some pulse shape, then you get that optical pulse shape mapped onto the sort of amplitude profile of the electrons. So here's a, a large first pulse and a small second pulse. That's going to produce a, a, lot, a large bunch of electrons followed by a small bunch of electrons. And then if you have a um, time-varying transverse electric field, then you can steer those electrons, you can sweep them say left to right on this phosphorescent screen, exactly the same method that a cathode ray tube uses to trace out a, a, a television image. And so you can um, map this temporal behavior of the uh, electron bunches into a transverse pattern on the screen. Okay, so that's one method for dealing with um, very fast pulses. Um, you can use that up to about picoseconds. So it still doesn't get down to femtoseconds. Femtosecond pulses can't be measured directly, um, but they can be measured using their autocorrelation. The idea is that you can, if you have a repetitive pulse, then you can separate the pulse into two components and recombine them. And by adjusting the path length of one of the pulses, so this is the Michelson interferometer, by moving the position of this mirror, you can take the pulse, split it apart, and then recombine it so that you reproduce the original pulse, or you can delay the two components relative to each other. And there are ways to measure how much those two pulses overlap. And so the ways to measure how much two pulses overlap is to get a material that responds nonlinearly, and that's what this second harmonic generator is. It's a nonlinear material. It's going to produce frequency doubling, second harmonic generation, so frequency doubling of the light that's proportional to the, um, to the total intensity on the uh, material. So you have two overlapping pulses. If they, if they don't overlap at all, at any instant, the peak intensity is low compared to if they're perfectly overlapped. If they're only partially overlapped, then the period over which they're overlapping, the intensity is higher and will more efficiently produce second harmonic generation here. So you have a couple of, let's say, let's say you have a white light pulse and then you have some ultraviolet light um, generated by the second harmonic generator. You detect that. And as you move this mirror back and forth, the amount of ultraviolet light you detect, the amount of second harmonic generation that you detect, varies. So you plot that as a function of the position of the mirror. And you're tracing out the autocorrelation of the two pulses as you move uh, the two pulses back and forth across each other. And this is a nonlinear material. So it's the production of the second harmonic generation is proportional to the intensity squared. I'm sorry, not the intensity. So the autocorrelation, which is the product of a function and a time delay of, its, of itself, 
is what the second harmonic generation crystal sees. It sees the intensity from a pulse in one mirror, the intensity from a pulse from the other mirror, that time delay due to the spatial position of the second mirror can be varied and you can trace out then the autocorrelation function. Okay, so the book has a uh, couple pictures of the autocorrelation functions for different functions. I think it's wrong. I saw it, I scanned it, and I stuck it in my slides because I thought that was something useful to have in there. So I wanted to demonstrate a point, and then I looked at it a little more carefully and realized it wasn't demonstrating what I was thinking. Um, if you have, for example, a square pulse, and you ask what is the autocorrelation of the square pulse, or if you wanted to know the pulse width, the square pulse, that's easy, it's the width of the, uh, the width of the pulse, whether it's the full width half max or any criteria you use would still give you the same period. The autocorrelation says take that pulse, delay it by some amount tau, And then essentially measure the overlap. Measure the product of these two and integrate. So the product of these two is only non-zero when they're both, both pulses are non-zero. It's right here. And as you make tau longer and longer, the amount of overlap gets smaller and smaller until it's zero. In fact, it gets smaller and smaller linearly so that the autocorrelation function should look like this. Right, and the pulses are perfectly overlapped. You get a maximum in the autocorrelation. And when they're displaced by more than one pulse width, they don't overlap at all. And so, in this case, the full width half max of this autocorrelation function is the same as, as that. But you can see the shape is different. And if this pulse had been a different shape, its autocorrelation would also be a different shape. And if you measure the full width half max of the autocorrelation function, There are different relationships that tell you how that relates to the full half max of your pulse. And it depends on the shape of the pulse, which is what this table is showing. So the ratio of the full width half max to the autocorrelation function to that of the pulse is 1 for a rectangular pulse. For a Gaussian, it's squared at 2. For a hyperbolic secant squared, 1.55 for a Lorentzian it's 2. So there's these different pulse shapes that you can have that give different relations between the autocorrelation and the pulse shape. So you can use the autocorrelation function 
to measure the pulse length, but it's not a direct measurement, so you have to know something about your pulse before you can do it. You have to know the shape of the pulse, or you have to assume the shape of the pulse before you can uh, use this to determine the uh, pulse length. So what's wrong with this plot? Can anyone see? This is supposed to be the autocorrelation function for different pulse profiles. A is for a Gaussian pulse, B is for a rectangular pulse, C is for a single noise pulse, and D is for continuous noise. The rectangular one should have, been a tri should have had a triangle. I think these two are right, and this one I can't really tell. It's not so obvious to me with it. This tau equals tau. Well, the displacement between the two pulses is zero. So right here, the center is at tau equals zero. No, we're measuring. We're plotting the autocorrelation as a function of tau. Which in the experiment, tau is, as you move, as you step the position of one mirror of the Michelson, you record different points on this autocorrelation function. And at each position of the end mirror, you measure the intensity of the second harmonic generation, and you plot that on the y-axis. And that would trace out this autocorrelation function. Yeah, here it is. Well, you can have negative or positive tau, right? Depending on whether one part of the pulse is, comes before. I mean, if you have one pulse and one reference pulse. If your pulse comes before the reference pulse, you'd say it's a negative tau. After the reference pulse, you'd consider positive tau. Okay. Okay. So, what can you do with these ultra-fast pulses? So, if we know how to generate them, how to deal with them. Um, what can you do with them? Well, one thing is they have a broad spectral bandwidth. It's by definition. If you have an ultra-short pulse, you're going to have a broad spectral bandwidth. So it's not going to be useful for trying to distinguish exact frequency levels of a system. It's not going to be good for uh, fine energy level detection. But you have high peak intensities. That can be useful. Um, we've seen examples uh, REMPI was the one example we saw where you use the electric field to ionize matter and then you count the atoms using a mass or the ions using um, some method of ion counting. So you can do that with the high intensities of an, of an ultra-fast pulse. The fact that the pulse has a very short temporal duration, say delta-like function, means that you can excite your sample at a very specific time and then you can probe it at another specific time and observe how the behavior of your sample changes as the time between the pump and the probe change. We'll look at an example of doing that. Um, so you can monitor things that are temporally varying with good time resolution. So maybe a chemical reaction or a chemical process that you want to understand better. Um, this shows 
how you would use, or uh, the basic idea behind um, detecting molecules that have been either ejected or uh, ions that have been ionized using a high electric field. So here's, a, uh, here's an atomic wave function bound in this potential well. And with no external electric field, it's bound. In the presence of an external electric field, um, it can change. So a linear electric field in, this, in X here can tilt this potential well and allow this wave function to tunnel through. Or if it tilts it enough, it can just allow it to escape. There's okay, so the two methods of ionization there. And the ions that are produced can be, this is a basic mass spectrometer, they can be accelerated using some, uh, some cathodes to accelerate them. And then they can be deflected by an electromagnet. Right? The amount of deflection depends on their charge to mass ratio. So different masses will be deflected by different amounts. And so by adjusting the strength of this electromagnet, you can scan through the different masses of the ions and, and have some uh, particle counter over here that detects how much flux of a given charge to mass ratio corresponding to the applied voltage to the electromagnet is getting through. That's the basic idea behind uh, So what you're doing is you're taking those ions, right? You're going to count the ions, essentially. So ions are charged, so you can apply a voltage over here on these plates and accelerate them out of the interaction region, right? That's producing the ionization. So you're illuminating the sample with the ultrafast pulse. Okay. So, okay. So. Maybe you have um, a chemical reaction where one of the products can be ionized by the ultrafast pulse, but the, the reactants aren't, right? So you can monitor the, that's one example. Um, we'll look at an example of organic polymers and how, not the, not the ion detection, but how ultrafast pulses are used to monitor the, uh, the behavior of the charge creation in the polymers. And that uses um, a pump probe technique. So we've seen examples of pump probe techniques before. Um, we saw it in saturation spectroscopy, where you have a pump that saturates the material and a probe that monitors essentially how much of the material is saturated. Um, here when we talk about pump probe, we'll describe a pump as pumping the atoms or the molecules out of the ground state into some intermediate state. Normally that would then just decay back to the ground state. But a probe or an additional uh, pump could come in, an additional beam could come in and pump it up to some secondary state. Right? And you could, for example, monitor the lifetime of this intermediate state by delaying the pump and the probe. If you delay the pump and the probe by more than the lifetime, there won't be any population in the upper state. 
when the probe comes, right? So you wouldn't see whatever mechanism you're using to detect these, this secondary state, you wouldn't see any, any population in the secondary state beyond the lifetime, but um, within the lifetime, you'd expect to see a, a two-step process pumping up to the secondary state. The basic idea. Um, and with ultra-fast optics, you can have very narrow pulses, so you can get very good temporal resolution in monitoring things. Okay, so let's look at an example. This is a, uh, a journal article that I pulled out that I'm not going to have you go through and read the whole thing. I'll just outline the article. But it says, how are charge carriers generated when light is absorbed in an organic semiconductor? This fundamental question has been the source of ongoing controversy, but valuable insight can be gained from ultra-fast pump probe measurements of carrier dynamics in these materials. So, organic semiconductors are interesting for a number of reasons. One is um, OLEDs. Your phone may have an OLED. Mine's not lighting up. My little outside screen here is an OLED. Um, some new televisions use OLEDs. They're really bright. They're really thin. They don't need to be backlit. They generate their own. They get the transistors are the light-emitting diodes. They can be addressed directly without a uh, need for a backlit. Backlight make them very thin. You can make them flexible. There's a lot of interest in organic polymers for this application. Um, in 2000, it led to the Nobel Prize in Chemistry for the development of conductive polymers. There are conductive organic polymers. Um, but there's, so there's a lot of technology development of organic polymers right now. Um, a lot of interesting things can be done with them, but there's still a lot that's not understood about them. So one of the things that is not well understood is um, how charge carriers get produced. So in a typical semiconductor, when you have these, these different uh, bands of the semiconductor, and when, when either optical or electronic energy is added to the, to the material that can excite an electron from the lower band to the upper band, leaving a hole in the lower band, that provides charge carriers. And so you have a free electron in this conduction band, and then there's a hole left in the valence band. Those can, can carry charge, or those are charges that can carry current. Um, and so that is basically the mechanism behind the transistor. Right? An applied, an applied uh, signal can change the conductivity and can then amplify another signal that's using that conductivity to uh, transmit through the material. So that's the picture from traditional semiconductor materials. One of the problems with this is it suggests that if you put in 
a photon of enough energy to ionize the material or to, to excite an electron into the conduction band that you should immediately get conduction. You should immediately get um, the resistance going down and current able to flow through that material. Um, that's not what's seen in all of the organic semiconductors. What's seen is that there's a certain amount of energy necessary to produce um, or to, to stimulate an excitation, but that's not enough to cause it to be conductive. There's an additional about 0.5 eV of energy that's necessary to conduction. So an alternative model looks like this. It says that the uh, material in the lower state gets excited to an upper state when it has the minimum amount of energy necessary for a transition. But that upper state is slightly below the conduction band. So that this represents a bound electron. It's bound and in a higher energy level, just below ionization. So this is the ionization energy. And this is a, a stable state just below ionization. And so you can get absorption of light caused by excitation to this lower state that's not enough to produce conduction. But if you put in higher energy light, then you ionize the material and it conducts. That's the competing theory. And depending on whose research you read and which material is being studied, you can find evidence that supports either of these theories. Okay, so one thing that... Um, so there's a number of theories that sort of incorporate both of these two extremes. Um, some have excitations being produced into this bound state, and then the bound state sort of decaying into a conducting state due to things like um, energy added via collisions with neighboring molecules um, or other, other sort of intermediate processes. There may be some, some interesting uh, dynamic information that could be that could illuminate which of these models is correct or, or um, illuminate the details of what's going on if one could observe the behavior of the material over the time scales in which this process would occur. So the traditional method that has been used to uh, study things like this involves pumping the system with a pulse so you could optically pump it, send in enough energy to produce an excitation, and then measure the conductivity of the organic polymer. So you have an oscilloscope, you're applying a voltage, you expect that when this pulse goes through, that would allow it to conduct, and you would see some voltage pulse in the oscilloscope. Right? So that is limited by essentially the speed of your oscilloscope. So fast oscilloscopes can get up to about 50 gigahertz. That's a, a temporal resolution of 20 picoseconds. So that's several orders of magnitude above where ultimately these, uh, the timescales that go on in this, this type of process are at. Okay, so this type of measurement is not sufficient to differentiate between these two possible models. So an alternative is this ultra-fast pump probe technique. So there's a, a pump pulse and a probe pulse. 
Those could be two pulses from the same laser that are temporarily shifted. The pump, the only difference here is that the pump pulse is the first pulse to arrive. The probe pulse comes at a later time. Other than that, they could be identical pulses. They hit the material in the interaction region. And this can excite the initial exciton. So this you'd expect um, to be absorbed and to excite the system up near the conducting state. And then if this arrives before that conducting or before that <coughs> excitation has a chance to decay into the conducting state, then you'd expect that this would not be absorbed. Generally, this will be absorbed by free conductors. Um, however, if it, if it arrives after the system has free conductors, then this would be expected to be absorbed or partially absorbed. So you can measure the absorption of this pulse as a function of the temporal delay with respect to the pump. And that should tell you when the charge carriers are being produced. So what would limit the temporal resolution of this type of measurement? Well, that would set the, you can set that, right? You set that by physically moving one of the mirrors that these pulses bounces off of to change its path length. Um, and you can scan that from zero to, to nanoseconds. Right, but ultimately, you're still going to be you're going to be measuring absorption. So you're going to have a photodetector over here, and it measures how much of this probe pulse goes through. That photodetector may have a very slow time response. It may have um, you know nanosecond time response if you're if it's fast photodetector. It could have microsecond time response if it's not. Um, would that limit? The temporal response of the, the measurement, though? Uh, not autocorrelation, but what you'd be doing is you send in one pump and one probe with a given delay, and you measure the attenuation of the probe. So maybe you split the probe, you measure, say, split it with the beam splitter, measure the intensity before the sample, measure the intensity after the sample. Okay, and for that, you really don't care how fast your detectors are. Essentially, they're going to measure the total energy in the pulse. Most likely, they're, well, they're going to be too slow to measure the uh, changing intensity in the pulse. They're just going to measure the, the total energy that, that is incident on the detector in the pulse. So it really doesn't matter how fast your detectors are. Um, all you can infer from that measurement is the total energy in the pulse. And then if you repeat the measurement with a delayed, with a, a different delay of the pump and the probe, you'll get a different attenuation. Right? You continue to do this for different delays. And regardless of the temporal response of your detector, you can map out the, uh, the this is the probe absorption, on the y-axis plotted as a function of the probe delay time. And the resolution here is going to be limited by 
the pulse width of the probe. So if you think about um, the probe as having some width, right? as the pump and the probe are separated, So first comes the pump, then the probe. And the delay time, call it tau, is what you ultimately want to plot the absorption against. All right, well, your resolution in tau is just going to be determined by the width of the pulses, right, not on temporal response of the detectors that measure them. So using femtosecond pulses, you get femtosecond resolution in, in time. And the key is that we're doing repetitive measurements. So this isn't just trying to measure very rapid change in the absorption. We're measuring very slowly, but then we're repeating the measurement with a, a different delay. So the idea here is that you get um, conduction in this band, and if there's carriers, they're going to give rise to absorption. So that's so if there's uh, electrons that are not bound to a particular atom, right? then uh, an oscillating electric field. We started the, the whole class talking about electrons being bound to atoms and treating them as oscillators, being driven by the electric field. And that gave rise to index of refraction calculations, absorption calculations, and basically all, everything we've done has assumed the electrons are bound to the, to the carriers. Here, if they're free electrons, then they're not, no longer oscillators. But an electric field drives them, they just produce a current. Current produces ohmic losses, and they transfer the energy of the photon into heat. Okay, so it's a different mechanism than the change in electronic levels that we've been talking about. So presence of carriers in this conduction band equals losses. Just think about it that way. And the carriers, the theory is that the carriers aren't being produced immediately. At first there is an excitation into a state that's a bound state, but has an energy level very close to the conduction band, and then small perturbations to that can give it enough energy to get up there into the conduction band. Um, no. So, so, so in the energy level picture, we would think of absorption as being pumping the ground state up to the conduction band, right? Um, but here what we're talking about is um, the material in this conduction band 
not really, not really able to draw it in an energy level diagram. But the probe coming in sees these free carriers. It, it accelerates them. Um, in the process, it transfers its energy to the carriers, and they end up moving with some bulk velocity. That's attenuation of the probe. Right, and that won't happen when the car carriers aren't there. Well, you want to vary it, right? So what you want to do is you want to start with them close together. So physically, the way this would work. So you've got your laser, your pulsed laser. So whatever mechanism you use to pulse it, if it's a mode-locked laser, you might have a stretcher, a compressor, whatever you've got, you've got it here. And then you split the beam. So if it's an ultra-fast pulse, see, maybe you Maybe use a pellicle beam splitter that's very thin. There's not much material to go through. You've got a fixed mirror there. And here you can imagine a mirror on a translation stage that can be moved back and forth. That will vary the uh, length of this. And then these either could be retroreflected so that they're collinear, or they could just be. Um, they don't necessarily have to go through the beam splitter again. They could just be steered. And I think in this experiment, that's actually what they did, is they just uh, steer them onto a point over here, and this mirror can be moved to change the path length. And so you can scan this delay from a negative delay to a positive delay, so all the way through zero. And It allows you to map out uh, a time delay you know, that goes all the way from zero. Any other questions? Okay, so um, I've got some administrative things to take care of today. You guys know what these are? Okay. I need someone to administer these. These are the uh, the evaluations the evaluations of teaching effectiveness.